All right, take First Samuel. Beauty and the Beast. Okay, and for some reason, Mike, do you have to switch to some other slide? Okay. First Samuel chapter, let's, let's review. I know last week we got a little bit sidetracked because I talked about uh, war. And, um, and I'm praying a blessing upon Israel that there would be peace to Jerusalem and peace to Israel. And that ultimate peace that I'm praying for is found in Jesus Christ. I am praying a blessing upon Palestine that they also would find peace. And the ultimate peace for them is Jesus Christ as well. So I'm praying for peace for the hearts of those people. It's really the only answer to the animosity that they have towards each other. The the solution is not going to be political. It, It will be spiritual. But so... The week before, I preached on 1 Samuel 24. To re, just to remind you, it's when David and his men are hiding in the cave, and King Saul comes in. Do you remember to use the cave as an outhouse? And while he's in there, David creeps up, I think with the intent of killing King Saul, but at the last moment changes his mind and instead cuts off a corner of his robe. King Saul leaves the cave, and then David says, comes out and says, King Saul, I could have killed you, but God has convicted me that I am not to take vengeance myself, that I am to let God take vengeance. Do you you remember that? In chapter 24, verse 12, may the Lord... Judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. I, even though you're trying to take my life, even though you're acting evil towards me, I am called to bless and not to do evil back, but I'm going to leave room for God to take care of this issue. And I had the whole sermon on that. Do you remember that? Yes? No? Okay. I thought maybe I'd have to re-preach. Don't cut corners in the outhouse. Okay. Chapter 25. So the very next chapter, I've entitled Beauty and the Beast. Now, I actually preached on this eight years ago. I have to tell you, the sermon is totally different from eight years ago. Different, totally, it's amazing the different things I have seen this time than I did eight years ago. I'm embarrassed about the sermon I preached eight years ago. So let's start. Verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Samuel is, of course, the, the prophet this book is named after. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. Now, there are two people. We're going to see a married couple, and I call it Beauty and the Beast. The guy is awful. The husband is a rotten man, and the wife is incredible. So, verse 2. A certain man in Maon who had 
property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Now, just so you know, we, the only person in Scripture that had more animals is Job. Job in the scripture seems to be the wealthiest person that there ever was. But this guy would come in second, at least as described in the scripture. Now, maybe some of the kings of Israel were wealthier, but this person, as far as it written down, is he's got a lot of money. And this is the only thing going for this guy, is that he's very wealthy. Verse 3, his name was Nabal. And he's going to be the beast here in a moment. His wife's name was Abigail. She's the beauty. But she's more than beauty because then we read she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. Now, this is interesting. Many times in Scripture, it says a woman was beautiful. This is like the only time where it also tells us she was intelligent and beautiful. And by the way, the emphasis is always on the first word in the Hebrew. She's intelligent first, and then she's beautiful as well. Now, I got to stop here first. Well, <laughs> let's, let's look at the husband, then I'll ask a question. But her husband was surly. In the NIV, it says surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. He, he has good background. He's related to Caleb. That's a Calebite. So you remember Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that stood up for the Lord and said, let's go into the promised land. And the other 10 spies said, no way. And God eventually took Joshua and Caleb into the promised land. Well, that's, his, that's Nabal's descendant from Caleb. So good spiritual background. But we read that he's surly and mean. Now, depending on the version you have, uh-oh, maybe I should turn this on. Maybe that's why it's not working. Okay. So in the NIV, it has surly and mean. In the New Living Translation, it's got crude and mean. In the King James Version, it's got churlish and evil. New King James Version, harsh and evil. American Standard Version, churlish and evil. Dewey Bible, churlish, and very bad and ill-natured. A lot of versions use the word churlish. The NIV uses the word surly, which is like, whoa. All right, so I'm looking up churlish. It has its origins in late Old English, but its modern-day meaning of deliberately rude, marked by a lack of graciousness. A rude, ill-bred person, one with lack of refinement, feelings, difficult to work with or deal with. NIV has surly, so I look up the word surly in the Webster Dictionary, and it goes irritable and churlish. I'm like, okay. No matter what you look up, you get back to churlish. They, they also have crabby. When I told my wife about this word, I was like, churlish? She, she says, that sounds like churchless. And I was like, yeah. That's a good description of Nabal. He's churchless. He's ungodly. He's a mean, ungodly 
crabby guy, okay? So here's the question I have for you. How did Abigail, who's so smart, wind up with Nabal? So what's your, what's your thought? Why did she marry this man? This is your turn. So some people say it was an arranged marriage, but she's, okay, what else? I saw, he's rich. So listen, women. Do not marry a man just because they're rich. Look beyond that, okay? Look, take the whole person in. Do not be blinded by him flashing a nice car and taking you out to nice restaurants. Dig a little bit deeper. I was also thinking to myself, I noticed, at least, by the way, this is a description of my wife, intelligent and beautiful. And I'm sure it's a description of all the women here this morning. Um, I was, but I've noticed that my wife has definitely gotten smarter through the years. And I'm thinking, hmm, Abigail, probably, you know, the foolish early 20s, late teens. But women tend to get much smarter as they get older. I don't know if men get as quickly grow in our brain power as women do, but they, they can start soaring. So, all right, let's read on. Verse 4, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And this is like, um, I'm going to call this like Thanksgiving time. It's a big celebration when the sheep are being sheared, and he's got a lot of them. So he sent 10 young men. David sends 10 young men. And I, I love that they're young men. There's young men that are joining David in his, you know, crusade of fighting against the Philistines. And I, I, I always like when young men love the Lord and are on fire for the Lord. You're going to note that on the, the nominations, there are two young men, Eric Thomas who's married to Holly, that's over in Europe. Everyone's asking what happened to Holly. She's in Europe on business. So Holly's husband that's in this service has been nominated to be an elder. And um, who's the other? We have another young. Yeah, who's the other? We, we got another. Oh, yeah. Um, Ron Janicki. And I don't, I say young, I, well, I probably shouldn't give away their age, but they're not quite as old as I am, okay? <laughs> so I, I just, it's nice. And then we're also bringing on kind of an older gentleman as one of the elders as well. So, but it's, I like when we bring young men on as leaders and we balance out our board among all the different age range. I think to myself that I got saved just about when I was 19, and by 22 years old, I was an elder in an Alliance church. And I know I, we've never brought on an elder that young, but you know, I know it opened my eyes and, and helped me to understand ministry. Um, I, Looking back, I definitely think I was too young. I don't think they should have made me an elder at 22 in that it was a little Alliance church and they were probably a little desperate. 
So, the young men. All right, so let's see here. I want you to go. He sends these young men. Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. And say to him, so David's sending a blessing. Here's the blessing I want you to give Nabal. Long life to you. Good health to you and your household. And good health to all that is yours. What an amazing blessing that David wants to give in the name of the Lord to an individual. And Nabal was foolish because he should have taken that blessing. He needed that blessing. And instead, he rejected that blessing. He rejected David's men and David and rejected the Lord's blessing. And believe me, he needed that blessing when David said to him, long life to you, good health to you. I, you know, I, I'm praying for God to bless your life and your health. And Nabal says, I don't. I don't need that blessing. Oh, yeah, he does. For those of you that don't know the rest of the story, Nabal is going to die. He needed that blessing. So, verse 7. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. We never took any of your animals. We helped protect your shepherds from the Philistines. Verse 8, ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men. Since we come at a festive time, they would have like, like a Thanksgiving time. It's how I kind of view it. Celebrating, you know, this is reaping of all the, the wool or whatever they did with the sheep. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. You know, a couple sheep would be fine. Or whatever, you know, whatever you would like to give. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I? Oh, here, I got it in the Hebrew. Because it emphasizes my way better in the Hebrew. It does a little bit in the NIV, but here's the Hebrew text. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers? I mean, Nabal is, he's churchless, he's godless, and he has forgotten because he's become so wealthy, so powerful, he's forgotten that that's all come from God. Now, all of a sudden, it's my, it's all me. It's my bread, it's my water, it's my money, it's my men, it's my servants, it's my company, it's, you know, you, you get the picture, right? And why should I give to these men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. You leave Nabal for me. He's mine. You guys get the rest. But Nabal, you save him for me. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. 
Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them, a wall protecting them from the raiding parties of the Philistines. Verse 17, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. He's the beast. Now he's being called the wicked man. He's churlish, he's churchless, he's mean, he's wicked. And it's interesting, the, the servant goes, no one can talk to him. You know why you can't talk to him? Because he knows it all. He knows it all. He doesn't need advice. He doesn't need God. He doesn't need his wife. He doesn't need anyone telling him what to do because he knows it all. He's so smart. Abigail acted quickly. Did I tell you she's very intelligent? She doesn't dilly-dally. She moves quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep. Now, I'm imagining that she's going overboard now. So it's funny, out of all the thousands of sheep, whatever, he could have gave a couple sheep and it would have been done. David would have been happy. And, but now she's like, okay, I, I, you know what? He's mad. I'm, I'm going to give five now, which is still like next, next to nothing compared to what he has. But five dressed sheep, five seers of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on her donkeys. And she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Why didn't she tell him? Because he doesn't listen to anyone. The wife's like, why tell my husband? He doesn't care. He doesn't listen to anyone. He's not going to take my advice. He's, he's going to tell me not to, you know. Verse 20. And she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All of my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. And of course, David's a godly man. We know the husband doesn't listen to anyone. Nabal, he doesn't listen to anyone. But David says, I'll, I'll listen. That's a godly man. I'll listen. I'll listen to the Lord. I'll listen to my wife. I'll listen to people that have some good wisdom. She says to him, verse 25, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means, what does it mean? Fool. And folly goes with him. As for me, and as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. So let's stop here for a second. She says his name, Nabal, means fool, and folly, wickedness, goes with him. Now, we think it might be a nickname that he got somewhere. He just, 
He's a mean, wicked person. It's probably how he got all of his wealth is by stomping on people and, and just ch- huh, churchless. The word, you know David, so don't lose 1 Samuel 25 and come with me to Psalm 14. You know David always sings about <laughs> whatever he's going through. I've shown you this a couple of times, different psalms that David has come up with. Now, Psalm 14 doesn't specifically, the other psalms that we looked at in the past sermons specifically tell us, okay, David sang this when he was in the cave hiding and stuff like that. But Psalm 14, a lot of commentaries say, David got this song about Nabal. Now, in the Hebrew, Nabal literally is fool. So Psalm 14, everyone there? Well-known verses by a lot of Christians. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? You've heard that verse? In the Hebrew, if you saw the Hebrew, it's the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. So that's the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. That's what's used there. So just so you know, that first verse can be translated one way or another. You can translate it as often the versions do, which is the fool says in his heart, there is no God, like an atheist. So someone who's saying, I don't believe there's a God. I, I believe That matter just always existed. (laughs) I'm like, what a joke. Matter and energy just always existed. That doesn't even make sense. But, or it can mean no God for me. Yeah, maybe there's a God. But as far as I'm concerned, there's no God for me. Churlish, churchless. It's, there's lots of people that may acknowledge, yeah, there might be a God or something, but no God for me. I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in hearing from him because I already, you know, I'm my own God. Now, what's interesting is in verse one, he, David sings, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So it's, that's exactly what Abigail says. She says his name is Nabal, which means he's a fool and he's full of wickedness. And that's the first line that David sings. We think it's all about Nabal. Verse two, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Verse four, do these evildoers know nothing? Probably talking about Nabal. They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. They're churchless. But there they are overwhelmed with dread. And you're going to see that Nabal gets overwhelmed with dread when his wife tells him what happened. And because of the dread that comes upon him, he has a heart attack. And he dies. So David in verse 5, but they are overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. And that means God was present with David and his men as they were heading there. But anyway, let's come back to 
chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. So I want you to notice one more thing about this verse. Verse 25, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And then she, this is an amazing woman. This is called Christ-likeness. She then goes, and, and as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. She's actually kind of taking the blame. Oh, David, I, you know, I am so sorry. It's, it's not really my husband's fault. He's a fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm the one that should have saw your men. If I had seen them, I would have given you food. I would have taken care of this. So she's, she's an amazing wife. She's, in a sense, like Christ, taking on our sins upon himself, though he did not do anything. She is taking the blame like, oh, it's really my fault. You know, I, I'm the one that does the charity work for the estate. And if I had seen them, I, you know, I, of course I would have taken, given you some, some food. Verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands... May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. We think it's a reference to um, when David used the sling to take out Goliath. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, so in other words, do you understand what Abigail just did? Let's, let's go back one chapter. King Saul is after David to kill him. David sees King Saul in the cave, relieving himself. And David is going to go take vengeance and kill him. But what does David say to himself? David goes, wait a second. That is unchristian. The Bible is very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do not personally take vengeance on your enemies. So isn't it interesting? In chapter 24, David... And then he says the old saying, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. I personally am not going to take vengeance on you, King Saul. One chapter later, Nabal isn't going to send any food, and David's, let's strap on our swords. We're going to kill them all. We're going to kill all the men. One chapter later, David forgot. He, he knew the word of the Lord in the chapter right before. And now 
It's Abigail who's reminding him of God's word. She's telling David, hey, David, he's your enemy, but you shouldn't. Do you want to be guilty of taking vengeance with your own hand? She reminds him of the word of God. And that's why if you look at verse 32, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for telling me what God says, and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, if you hadn't come quickly. There's a spirit-filled woman. She hears from the Spirit of God. You need to go quickly to save your family. And she moves quickly, and even David acknowledges, if you hadn't come quickly, if you hadn't moved when the Lord told you to move, I would have killed everyone in, all the men in your household. If you hadn't come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. But he's praising God that God sent this woman to remind him of what he already knew the chapter before. I cannot tell you how often we all live this way. (laughs) I'm counseling with the couple in the church. And they get angry at each other. And I tell them, God's word says you shouldn't get angry at your spouse. And you shouldn't let the sun go down while you're angry. And I'm very spiritual. I give them the word. I know the truth. And then guess what I do the next day? I tell people, look, the Bible says you shouldn't. Or maybe one day I'm very successful. There's someone and I'm like, No, I'm not going to get jealous of that person. God's word says, do not get jealous, envious. It only rots your own bones out. And the very next day, I get jealous of someone. David, (laughs) one day, David's like, it's wrong to take vengeance. Even though Saul is after me, it is wrong. I am not going to be overcome by evil. I'm going to return blessing. I'm not taking vengeance with my own hand. And one day, you know... I don't know how long it is from one chapter to the next chapter, but I'm ready to kill him and and do it. But it's the godly woman that reminds him, uh, here's what God's word says. That's a type of woman every man needs. That's an intelligent, beautiful woman. (laughs) So... Verse 35, then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. So he's, he's slaying all kinds of animals for this huge banquet like a king. And of course, the king is him. I am king. This is everything that I've built. It's my bread. It's my sheep. It's my estate. It's, you know, because I'm king of my life. He's churlish, churchless. He's godless. He's a fool that says, no God for me, because I have it all together. You don't have to talk to him because he knows it all, right? His wife wife comes in. He's having this banquet for himself. He's a king. He's, 
he's high in spirits and very drunk. She knows, wait a second, when my husband's drunk, there is no way I'm going to talk to him. <laughs> that, that would be insane. So she waits till the next morning. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. And in the Hebrew, it is his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So he has a heart attack. Some people say stroke, but let me just tell you that in the Hebrew, it says his heart failed him. So I'm going with the heart attack. So Nabal, the dread, that's what David sings about in Psalm 14. The evil person says, no God for me. They're full of wickedness. When someone says they don't need God, then they're their own God, and they make their own rules, and, they, and they're, of course, going to be wicked. That's probably why they don't want God. And then he says, dread comes upon them. So Nabal has a heart attack. When he finds out, when his wife says, you were just ours from David coming with 400 men, he was going to kill you, our sons, and all the men of your vast estate, they were all going to be dead. So what were you going to do with all that money you have and all the riches and all the food and all the sheep and the cars and the house and, and your millions? You would have been dead by morning. He, when he realizes how close, he probably didn't care about the rest. But when he realized how close he was to being put to death, he has a heart attack. Now, I want you to notice something very carefully here. He has a heart attack, and how long does he lay in the bed because he can't move with that heart attack? Ten days. And then at the end of ten days, what happens? What happens? Not just he dies. What does it say about his death? The Lord struck him. Now, I want you to understand something. The Lord didn't give him the heart attack. He did that all on his own. He did that all on his own. Probably too much drinking and too much eating, you know? Too much stress in his life. He did, the heart attack is on him. Ten days later, that was on the Lord. Now, I want to explain something to you, and I, I want you to understand this kind of truth that I've experienced, and I see there's a lot more writing about it. Often when people are coming to the end of their life, God will give a certain amount of time in the hospital or on their sickbed at home for them to do what's known as a life review with God. So as a dying person comes to terms, and let me just tell you, I can tell you, unless the Lord takes you immediately, most people will go through this. As a dying person comes to terms with their own end of life and death, they often go through what we call a life review. A life review doesn't follow a predictable pattern, and no two people experience their life review in the same way. That said, there are five common stages of a life review. First stage is often anger. 
It's anger of, why, God, are you taking me now? I'm too young. I, I, I just amassed all my fortune. I just retired. I, I, am, I, I haven't followed God, and, and, and that's why I'm not following God, because I have a heart attack. I've got cancer, and, and I'm mad. You know, this is not what I expected, and so it, it starts with anger at God, at others. At, then it hopefully leads to dealing with taking responsibility. So hopefully in that life review, you move to the second phase. Some people never move past phase one. But hopefully second phase is, you know what? Maybe I am a sinner. Maybe I haven't been a good husband, good wife. Maybe I haven't been a good citizen. Maybe I haven't been a good boss. Maybe I haven't been a good person. Maybe I haven't followed God. And you begin to take responsibility for what led up to your point in life now. Then you deal with forgiveness. And hopefully you ask God for forgiveness. And then you ask your spouse often. They'll say to their spouse, dear, you've been such a great wife for the last 45 years. And now I realize what a horrible husband I've been. And I've been mean and surly and crabby and churlish and selfish. And God gave me you as a wonderful wife. You've been there. You've put up with me. Will you forgive me? And you can reverse it the other way around. Often they talk to their kids. Will you please forgive me? I know I wasn't the parent I should be. Often there's people that are laid on their heart that they have to contact and say, will you forgive me? I ripped you off. I, I know I lied. I did something to you. They often will talk to a pastor. Like, you know, they often, I, pastor, I need you to pray with me. I know I need God's forgiveness in my life. Then they come to peace with God and self and others. And then usually right before they die, they suddenly have this gratitude. Like, I know I'm forgiven. I'm just so thankful for life. I am thankful for the wife I had and, and, and the people I've met and for life and, and they're ready to move on. I cannot tell you how often, in fact, the doc, I, I was reading about these studies. Well, here's one. This just came out June 13, 2023 from the British Medical Journal. End of life experiences is an umbrella term used to describe a wide range of experiences that are spiritual or transcendent in nature, which occur in and around the process of dying, experienced by patients, a few hours, days, or weeks prior to death. Now, there's a second part to this. So not only do patients, not only will most of you, unless... So for Christians, sometimes the Lord will take people home right away. I think sometimes if, if you're doing, you can be doing a life review month by month when you have communion. When you have communion, you should be examining your heart. You should be doing a life review. God, is there sin in my life before, that I need to confess before I have communion? God, am I treating my spouse right? Am I, being, am I loving my neighbor as myself? Am I being a good boss? Am I being a good worker? So hopefully you're doing a mini life review where you're letting God's spirit speak to you month to month before you have communion. So often Christians can be ready and can go home quicker. For people that are not Christians or people that need a longer life review, God will give you so much time. And I know often 
People are waiting for their loved one to die. And they're like, why are they taking so long or whatever? God is patient. They're doing a life review to see what they're going to do. A few hours, days, or weeks prior to death, the patient recounts experience such as having seen or dreamt of departed relatives, friends, or Jesus, or angels who deliver messages inviting them to make the transition to death, the so-called deathbed dreams and visions. And again, I have seen this with many, many people. Now, what the rest of the study, not all are pleasant experiences. So some people, many people, well, if they're Christians, they often will see loved ones that they know are believers coming saying, you can go, you're, you're ready. Or they see Jesus or angels ready to take them home, ready to, you know. But not everyone sees that. Others see demons. Others see horrible situations. Oh, man, we are out of we are out of time. The Bible tells us that 10 days later, the Lord struck him dead. I was going to show you verses. That's bad. When you're dying, you want Jesus to come to you with open arms and say, Come home, or the angels carrying you. But in Scripture, when the Lord comes to you with a sword and puts you to death, that's a very bad sign. That's a sign that Nabal did not repent. And in fact, I wonder if Nabal had repented. If Nabal had gotten his life right and ask his wife for forgiveness and David for forgiveness, if the Lord could have said, yeah, I'll heal you of this heart attack, You'll, but he didn't. And after 10 days, the Lord said, you know what, I could wait, I could wait 20 more years and you're never gonna change. You're dying and you're going to hell. Father, um, I, I pray for all of us that we would not be nables, we would not be fools, we would not be churchless, godless, that your spirit would transform us and transform every marriage here, that all the women would be intelligent and beautiful. Sarah was beautiful even though she was 90 years old because of the spirit of God that was in her. May the men be men of God here, men of the word, and may they appreciate the godly women, the rubies that you have given us as wives. Help us to, to be wise men filled with the spirit and with love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.